0: My name is Richard Mosley, I'm a judge of the federal court and I am a designated justice on the court and presently the coordinator of our designated proceedings.
1: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. It's very exciting for us to have an opportunity uh, to talk about national security law and the role of the federal court uh, in this area. Uh, And we thought we'd we'd start, as we often do with our pod sites, by asking you about your personal background. Uh, You've been on the court for uh, the better part of a decade and a half now, more than that in fact.
0: Yes, actually, 15 and a half years. I was appointed in um, 2003. Before that, I started as, uh, I'm an Ottawa native, and I started as an assistant crown attorney in the, uh, the old courthouse here in Ottawa, and uh, was seconded to the Department of Justice temporarily, but that temporary secondment turned out to be 21 and a half years. And I was appointed from uh, justice in November 2003.
1: And while a justice, you were involved in national security law matters, as I recall.
0: I was. I was never in uh, an advisory capacity. I did not give legal opinions to the uh, security service, uh, but much of the policy work was, was being dealt with in my shop at the time, criminal law policy. We were working, for example, on reform of the Official Secrets Act for many years and hundreds of meetings. And uh, in um, 2001, in the immediate ap- aftermath of 9-11, I coordinated the legislative response to that uh, incident, uh, which uh, became the, the Anti-Terrorism Act of 2001, Bill right. C-36. Right. And that was a major
1: project, as I understand. It was right in the aftermath of 9-11, and I believe
0: it was drafted and enacted within four months? It was actually was uh, tabled within a month. Uh, we put together a team of about 50 uh, lawyers and other uh, professionals. And uh, it was fast-tracked through a special committee of cabinet on a much different uh, approach than normal procedure.
1: Hmm. And so since 2003, you've been on the federal court. And, of course, the federal court's got a, a broad jurisdiction. It's not just national security. Um, so before we get to the national security aspect, what other sorts of cases do you, would you hear as a federal court judge?
0: It's, pr- it's a statutory court, and uh, most of our jurisdiction is, lies in administrative law. Uh, Anything to do with the federal government, for example, normally comes to the federal court. We also have a very large jurisdiction in intellectual property, patents, trademarks, uh, copyright. We are the Admiralty Court for uh, Canada. And then we have a miscellany of various bits and pieces of jurisdiction which Parliament has given to us over the years.
2: Okay, so this is where I come in as the non-lawyer. Uh, generally intimidated by judges, regardless. Could you please explain what you mean by statutory court? And, uh, and ad- admiralty court sounds amazing. It sounds like everyone should have an amazing hat.
0: It's great fun to arrest a ship. <laughs> it, it is, uh, we are a court under section 101 of the Constitution, like the Supreme Court of Canada, mm-hmm. the Federal Court of Appeal, the Tax Court, and the Court Martial Appeal Court. But our powers are not inherent in that the jurisdiction that we have is only that which Parliament has given us and many, many statutes. I think there's maybe 50 different statutes which give us jurisdiction, some of which I had never heard of before I became a federal court judge and some of which I'm still discovering. And so two of those statutes are
1: the CSIS Act and the Canada Evidence Act, which have featured in many of our discussions on this podcast. So maybe this is an opportunity to segue that into the role of the federal court in the national security space. So I, I suppose the first question is, you don't hear terrorism, criminal law trials, per se. No,
0: no. Well, the closest we get to those cases is that we deal with um, CSIS warrants. So a warrant which uh, we issue to the service may result in the collection of information which then is translated into evidence that uh, is relied upon by the RCMP to obtain authorizations under part 6 of the criminal code or search warrants under the criminal code and then leads may lead to a prosecution but we're not involved in the trial of the matter but we do deal with the question of whether information which the government wishes or seeks to protect can be disclosed in that case. That would be under the Canada Evidence Act then? That's under the Canada Evidence Act. So those two statutes give us most of our work in this area. There are others I could list for you if you wish but the warrants are under the CSIS Act but then they that may become an application under the Canada Evidence Act for the protection of some of the information which has been collected. And those, uh, those applications can be massive. They can go on for years, because there can be thousands and thousands of documents, many of which have hundreds of pages or thousands of pages within them.
1: And these would be the Canada Evidence Act proceedings you're referring
0: yes. to, yes.
2: So your position is designated judge. Uh, what? Why the qualification? Why do they call it a designated judge?
0: Because most of these statutes, of, when Parliament uh, gives us the jurisdiction, it normally, the form of words used is that the application must be brought before the Chief Justice or a judge of the federal court designated by the Chief Justice.
2: Okay, so when uh, the Chief Justice has a a series of warrants to to look at, he can then say, I would like you to look at this particular one and I'm designating you the person who looks at it.
0: It doesn't quite work that uh, way. The Chief Justice designates uh, members of the court to do this work on an ongoing basis so my first designations for example were issued in december 2005. i'm still doing the work under the same designations uh, okay and uh, at present there are 15 of us and we do some of the work on a rotation basis there's always at least one of the designated judges available on uh, to deal with any urgent applications for warrants so that's uh, 365 Seven twenty-four. Those duty weeks, and the we do not disclose who the judge is during that week. So this is to avoid any risk of judge shopping on the part of the service. They don't know who they will get when they file their application for a warrant.
2: Judge shopping sounds uh, like I love shopping. Um, <laughs> can you maybe
0: explain what that means? Oh, it means perhaps uh waiting to see which judge will be on duty in any particular week in the hope of getting perhaps a more favorable hearing from that judge
2: right so, okay so this way this makes the process just a little bit more honest a
0: little bit more honest and uh, yes it does
1: so on um, there, there are 15 judges at present and they hear these uh, cases in which uh, they're supposed to be designated judges Of course there are challenges relative to the usual sort of judging they might do so a a classic exercise in judging would be two parties in front of the judge making oral arguments open pleadings in open court that's not really the way it works for most designated judging is it
0: no and it's uh, it's one of the most challenging aspects of our work because it um, it's easier for us when we hear both sides of a case and we have counsel who are marshalling the evidence and presenting submissions argument on in relation to that evidence uh, much of our work and until only about 10 years ago we very rarely had any security cleared counsel assisting us with this other than government counsel it began uh, the practice began of appointing uh, what we call amicus curiae or friends of the court about 10 years ago not really much more than that and then of course with the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in Sharkawi, the government brought in the special advocate regime which the Supreme Court uh, upheld in a later decision. So we now have those two categories or classes of security cleared members of the private bar. Special advocates, there's a list maintained by the Minister of Justice and Attorney General and then there are those and MIKI that we have selected and appoint on a case by case basis. It makes all the difference in the world to have good counsel digging into the material and identifying the issues that we are then called upon to adjudicate.
1: So the proceedings would be closed. So take a, a CSIS uh, warrant uh, application or a Canada Evidence Act case, they would be closed to the public. They would be closed to a party if there were an underlying party, say, in, in the, the criminal trial or whatever from which the Canada Evidence Act application comes. Uh, they would be excluded, but, but the idea of a special advocate in the immigration context or an amicus curiae in other contexts is to uh, level the playing field and equality of arms by, by bringing the security clear lawyer into the closed session?
0: Very much so. It helps to, to um, level that playing field, as you say and the the warrant applications are still probably the most secret aspect of our work we simply can't they are completely closed and we normally do not have an amicus uh, appearing in one of an application we do bring them in when there is a novel legal point to be considered by the court this happens from time to time and we will appoint an amicus or to Amiki to assist us with uh, the, the particulars of that uh, legal I- issue and on occasion we will sit on bunk in the sense that all of the designated judges who are available sit in on the hearing to listen to the evidence and to the submissions in those cases there's always just one judge who will actually preside over the application and render the decision.
1: And the idea of the en banc is is to create uh, consistency in what the judges have heard uh, so that you don't have, you can build institutional knowledge?
0: Yes, in fact, we started doing it originally just as a means, as part of our continuing education program. We would uh, hold uh, hearings and we would invite technical experts from the service and from other agencies to come in and to explain the technology that was being used to execute the warrants that we were issuing it was a very much uh, started off as, uh, as part of uh, the uh, educational process, but then we determined that it would be also helpful when we had a tough legal issue or collection of issues to address. So uh, I'm sure it must be very intimidating for the service witnesses and the lawyers from justice.
2: Or the analysts who have to write the briefings. Or the
0: analysts who are often in the back of the room when this row of judges marches into the room and uh, and we all have questions to ask.
2: Um, so an example of that might be if the service, for example, is utilizing a new technology in order to perhaps do surveillance or perhaps if Um, maybe a target of the service is using a new technology that the service is then trying to access in order to get information. Would that be an example of a kind of an mBank hearing? Uh,
0: Certainly the first example that you gave, if the service is adopting a new technology which they wish us to authorize for the execution of the warrants that uh, we issue, and we want to ensure that all of the designated judges receive the same briefing, then yes, we will conduct an en banc for that purpose. Let me um, let me add, just when we we're doing this, uh, where we have the service coming in to make a presentation with evidence and uh, and uh, submissions from counsel, we generally invite some retired eminent jurists to vet the presentation first, so that this is not used as a means to unduly influence the members of the, the designated judges. So they will, they will go, they will s- listen to it and they'll decide and they'll advise us whether they think it is all right. We then invite them to sit in as well during the actual uh, hearing.
2: Oh, this is interesting. So it's not just like showing up for the first time, this is actually vetted to avoid cre- the creation of bias.
1: Exactly. And that raises the issue of judicial independence, which of course is uh, a core preoccupation for any judge and for the judicial system. Uh, can, can you describe the, the issues around judicial independence that uh, you would have as a judge in this space and how judicial independence really works in our legal system?
0: Well, we, are, we, uh, we fiercely protect our judicial independence, which means in practical terms that we consider the evidence which is presented to us we don't allow any outside influences to be brought to bear on how we decide the cases and based on our knowledge of the law the application of the law to the facts we make the decision even if it's an unpopular decision with one or more parties concerned
1: and so that's tied to the concept of the rule of law absolutely the rule of law is this concept that's of course bandied around quite often from a judge's eye perspective, how do you envisage the rule of law?
0: It's absolutely essential that when we are making these decisions, we are we are expressing the rule of law in our decisions. We are considering what has been presented to us in the form of evidence and submissions, but then we are applying first the statute. The application for a warrant, for example, must fit within the statutory language. It must meet all of the prerequisites and conditions which Parliament have set for the applications for warrants. In addition to that, there is the Charter, and particularly in the case of warrants, we are applying all of the jurisprudence which has been developed since the coming into effect of the Charter, particularly in Section 8. Statutory requirements, prerequisites have to be respected, and the charter considerations have to be respected. That's all part of respecting the rule of law. So, it
1: wouldn't be the, the job of a judge if the statute hasn't kept pace with time to
0: change that statute through judicial fiat? No, we have no, we, uh, we are not legislators. We apply the law as it is written. Uh, from time to time, uh, such as my, in the case of my colleague, uh, Justice Noel, uh, he commented in one of his decisions a few years ago that the Ceases Act was uh, showing its age. It really hadn't been amended uh, much since it was uh, brought, in- enacted and brought into effect in 1984. But he did not read into the statute that what, that which he might have thought should be there
2: because it's a statutory court and in can't do that.
0: It's a statutory court, but uh, any court would not be able to rewrite the act to suit its uh, its uh, preferences.
2: Based on everything we've talked about so far, and this has been fascinating for me because, you know, when I was um, an analyst in working in the intelligence community, you would sometimes see these decisions come down and you could see the people around the building, kind of tearing their hair out, going, "Oh my goodness, what what's just happened?" There's been this ruling. Don't judges get it? Don't they? Don't they see what, what what they're doing? And I mean, um, you've you've talked a little bit about the fact that you know you're regularly briefed by the service themselves on their operations. That you know the whole kind of consideration of evidence, the rule of law. Um, I guess, you know, what would you say to the average intelligence officer or analyst who's sitting behind their computer screen? finding out that suddenly one avenue to collecting information has now been uh, declared illegal, you know, and then suddenly their lives get a little bit harder. So, at least that's the way they see it. I mean, I'm sure, as you've already talked about, the rule of law is absolutely fundamental. But what would you say to these um, individuals?
0: I understand their frustration. I would hope that they would uh, regard it as a learning experience, that uh, no one in the administration of any statute is perfect the mistakes are made. Uh, problems can occur it's important that uh, all of us learn from those mistakes and those problems and uh, and uh, make progress in um, dealing with the the problems which have been identified but yes I understand that they can be very frustrated by uh, our decisions but that is not a factor or consideration that that, uh, I can bring to bear on what I do
2: Right, so the, the state of hair pulling is not, uh, does not weigh into the decision of federal court judges.
0: Not the slightest.
2: Right. Um, Then can I ask maybe like a slightly different question, which is we've often seen um, sometimes former people who've been, who've been leading intelligence organizations in Canada talk about the judicialization of national security or the legalization of national security in ways I would say over the past decade that maybe no one had ever thought of in 1984, but I I think it was, it was Dick Fadden who, you know, the former director, Jim Judd. um, And they talked about the fact that, you know, Ceases when in the 1980s, had maybe one or two lawyers, and now it has a floor of them. I, I once saw someone had a, a floor mat which said, come back with a warrant <laughs> on there. The, 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 the amount of, of legal discussion that happens now at the service is really, really huge. So, I mean, do you have any views on that, on, on how that's changed? Because you've kind of been there, really, since this change, and I would say the last 15 years has occurred.
0: Well, I think it, it definitely stems uh, largely from uh, what has happened post 9-11 but don't forget that the very first director of the service, Ted Finn, had to resign because of problems that were identified in a warrant that was presented to the court in 86 or 87. So it's not new. That particular warrant had led to an RCMP investigation and the prosecution and it was in the course of the trial following from that that the counsel sought to obtain the underlying warrant which was a CSIS warrant issued by the federal court. The information provided to the court was seriously flawed and ultimately that warrant had to be quashed. Mr. Finn resigned. No, this isn't entirely a new phenomenon. It has become more intense post 9-11 because of a number of cases which have led to investigations by the RCMP with information provided under Section 19 of the Csis Act by the service to the RCMP, either leads or raw data The RCMP then have made use of that to obtain criminal code warrants. And one of the great things about Canada is that we all have a right to defend ourselves against criminal charges, and that part of the defending oneself is looking into the background to how the evidence was collected. There has been a great deal said, particularly by Professor Forcease,
2: I don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> Shrinks into his chair. Some some liberal some liberal arts college somewhere.
0: <laughs> on the subject of uh, uh, intelligence to evidence, I, I certainly I understand uh, that it poses major challenges for a service which was set up to collect information and advise the government on threats, and they are now uh, very much in the business sometimes. Don't forget, the vast majority of service investigations do not result in criminal proceedings. So we're talking about a fairly narrow uh, segment or slice of that work. There will be occasions when uh, problems do arise in translating the reports that have been uh, filed, uh, particularly when intercepts are destroyed. Raw data isn't there, and there are disputes about what the evidence is.
1: Right, that's that's a two, uh, case, exactly. to the Schukawi two case with the Supreme Court. Court. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, I guess, I guess the where where Csis gets frustrated, and it's like and I'm not pointing fingers, but like you know, for example, on that particular issue, it's like the the idea that you keep evidence forever was kind of anathema because we're not East Germany but then suddenly we have, all of a sudden you have to keep evidence forever.
1: That was Mr. Fadden's response to Sharkawi too. Yeah, he gave the speech where he said, I predict for a few years from now, people will com- be comparing us to the Stasi. Yeah, so of course the conflict there, the tension is the due process implications of having good quality information that allow a person to defend their interests against that uh, privacy issue of the great sucking sound of CSIS uh, retaining this information. And these are the sorts of policy issues that really uh, are uh, the sort of thing that the legislature should be invested in amongst others. But.
0: Yeah, you know, I can, yeah, I understand, uh, the, don't forget the uh, the huge concerns about what the RCMP were found to be doing, unbeknownst to virtually anybody.
2: This is in the 1970s? In the
0: 1970s. They were, they were collecting for many, many years, huge amounts of data, inf- personal information about Canadians, and that led to the restrictions imposed on the service in the act. And then all of a sudden, some years later, the Supreme Court is telling you, "Well, you shouldn't have destroyed that information which you collected." I right? can see how that presented a major challenge to the service.
2: I think I think the 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 idea is that you know they want to have that social license. They do, um, and, but you know, and so that's a, it's a difficult position to be in. But it's a really good example of the problems of operations, policy, and law that you know you're kind of at the heart of.
1: So. These, these must be really tough cases, because the other thing that's changed since 9-11 is the technological environment, which is, if anything, become more complex than at any time in the past. Um, and so th- I would assume that the materials that you have to vet and understand for purposes of issuing a warrant are becoming uh, more voluminous and potentially more complex. Uh, I would assume to a certain degree you're ac- operating in sp- splendid isolation, albeit perhaps with the assistance of an amicus, uh, I also assume that it, you're, the documents you're relying on are classified and probably you're operating in some you know, classified uh, building somewhere where you can't necessarily have access to the, all the technology
0: that you might otherwise have to assist your work. Well, we, li- we do uh, operate in a secure we do, do this work in a secure facility, which we fondly call the bunker.
2: <laughs> Sounds delightful. Uh,
0: well, it, when I started to do it, it was literally a bunker deep underground, and it was a terrible place to work. Foul air. It was a bank vault-type door. you get locked inside there and hope that somebody would come and get you. At Someone the end remember the day. judge? Remember <laughs> the judge, yeah. What <laughs> if the building started to burn down above <laughs> they, they all flee and forget the judge? <laughs> uh, we now have a much more a much more pleasant uh, secure facility and uh, we do operate there on the basis of uh, two separate systems one which is connected to our normal court network and one which is air gapped and is totally separate and we have very secure uh, procedures and facilities we they are they are vetted from time to time by cse it's one of, as you know, one of their mandates for the government of Canada, and uh, we have to meet those standards. So it's, uh, we're very careful about, about um, how we deal with the information we receive, uh, and But we do have reasonably modern technology to help us do this. So,
2: I mean, I guess this, this kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, you know, it's not like you're presented with a warrant and then you sit down and make a decision. Like, the, this involves reading thousands of documents.
0: Well, it depends on the... No, uh, the uh, there's a difference. The thousands of documents comes up in the context of a Canada Evidence Act Section 38 application right. regarding disclosure of uh, potentially injurious or sensitive information. The warrant applications can be voluminous, but they're not thousands of documents. They may be, for example, about 50 pages with annexes. They are developed in a very lengthy There's, I think, about a 34-step process within the service to produce the application before we ever see it, uh, which involves the uh, legal counsel, specialists, analysts, uh, headquarters, Department of Justice, uh, uh, lawyers, doing a quality control check. When it is presented to us, we normally read the... It comes to us in the form of an affidavit application from a service officer. We read that, we identify, it could take any, can take hours, then we schedule a hearing in one of our secure courtrooms. The officer, the affiant, who made the affidavit, appears with legal counsel from the group of lawyers, Department of Justice lawyers, who provide those services to CSIS and we have an opportunity to examine. We question the affiant about anything that concerns us that we've identified from reading the affidavit and the supporting annexes. Sometimes it's what's not there which is the most interesting and challenging aspect. Um, You've probably heard of the expression duty of candor This is something we take very seriously and we get uh, we've had on a number of occasions in recent years we've had to publicly state in our decisions that the service has breached the duty of candor. There is now a policy in place. I think service officers, Department of Justice, lawyers are trained on what that means, but it means full disclosure in good faith of every bit of information that the court may need to make its decision. And if it's not there, then we're not happy.
2: Right, I mean, and that's interesting because it actually speaks to the other side. So speaking kind of like with my, you know, former intelligence analyst hat on, but there's a lot of people who think that, you know, the Canadian court's just like the US FISA court, that it was stamping everything, it just approves everything. But the, the process is actually, very involved, as you say, like, these very, like maybe not thousands of pages, but lengthy documents, 34 step process, multiple vettings, um, having you challenge uh, what's happening and then critiquing for a lack of, I don't, I don't want to say honesty, but you say candor um, in terms of like the means and methods being used.
0: We've met with the FISA judges and judges from other uh, countries who do work similar. There's no there's no other country which has exactly the same model that we do but the FISA uh, judges are the closest in relation to our warrant practice and uh, I'm not going to criticize their model but that court sat for most of its uh, existence right in the heart of the US Department of Justice right. and was supported exclusively by counsel from the Department of Justice uh, I think things have changed in recent years uh, there but here we have from the very outset the beginning the very first the Chief Justice of the day back in 1984 insisted on our independence and that we would not accept the same kind of procedures which were being used in Washington so in it When when we we talk about the multiple steps that go into preparing a warrant application, uh, when it comes to us we may do a number of things. We can refuse the warrant. Uh, And When I'm talking about a warrant application, this could be a package of warrants, not just one. Different kinds of warrants for different kinds of of intrusive measures to be carried out by the service. We can amend the uh, warrant uh, as a result of what we've heard. We can add terms and conditions. We can send it back for it to be redone. We can encourage the uh, service to withdraw that application. Ultimately, we can refuse to grant it. Oh, just one other thing is we can also impose term limits. Uh, uh, As I did with the DIPS warrants back in two thousand and eight, I issued that only the the first set uh, only for um, two or three months, I think, because I wanted to think about it some more and I wanted to get more argument on the uh, the jurisdiction, the courts, because this was a question very much in uh, uh, there were different views as to whether we did or did not have the jurisdiction to do it. So I said, uh, I'll issue these warrants now because of the exigent circumstances which applied in that particular instance, but I want you to come back in three months and I want a a full, uh, Is that first, that was on a Saturday that I heard that application, I want you to come back with a full record in three months and I want to consider it some more.
2: And so you'd have some idea of how it was working in practice and that would uh, better inform a more No,
0: At that point I was not interested in how it was working in practice, I was interested in the legal authority. I still had some doubt about my authority to grant the type of warrant. I did accept uh, the, uh, the argument that was put to me, that first impression, but I wanted to give it some more careful consideration. In that particular area, some years later, as you are well aware, information came to my attention which caused me to reopen the whole issue because of how the warrants were being executed. But that was only some time later.
1: And, and we know a lot about this because the court now has a practice of issuing redacted or partially redacted uh, written reasons in these thesis warrant cases, at least for the ones that raise new issues of law. Uh, and so uh, there's a closed set of reasons which are available to those who are within the secrecy tent, and then there's now an open set of reasons, at least for uh, cases that involve novel questions of law. Um, how how do you make that decision as to whether y- you're going to release
0: a, a public version? Uh, it's a matter of uh, whether we think this is going to contribute to the development and knowledge of the law in um, in Canadian society. At one time, this was all done completely secretly. There was uh, the, the court gave out no information about its work. And it was only really about 10, 15 years ago that uh, Chief Justice Lutfi started to uh, open the the gates uh, supported by uh, Justice Noel and uh, others of us who decided, uh, well, the open court principle has got to mean something even in this context. And you can do it, you can release a decision with redactions, it were necessary to protect particularly sensitive information, but you can disclose. This is how the law is developing, so that the bar, the lawyers, but also the general public, gets an understanding of what's happening, and also, you know, what is the federal court doing here in Ottawa. I think I think the public has a has a right to know what is going on in these cases, and uh, by issuing. Even a heavily redacted judgment advances that interest in some respect.
2: Well, d- just one more question. Um, I'm not sure how comfortable you are talking about emergency warrants versus regular warrants?
0: Well, they're all the same warrants. You see, in the context of our warrant authority, we are, we are empowered to grant warrants, to issue warrants. We might do so on an emergency basis because of exigent, what we call exigent circumstances. Something is going on, like the well, yeah. Saturday one. Uh, I learned about that late on a Friday uh, came in on the Saturday morning read the material conducted the hearing early Saturday afternoon and uh, issued the warrants either later that day or the Sunday morning so that can that it's but that is a rare occurrence normally the service has gone through a great deal of work in advance in order to identify its targets That works its way up to the highest levels of the serfs and they decide yes we need warrants we can no longer rely on the non intrusive methods that we have such as physical surveillance they can follow people around they don't need a warrant for that but if they want to enter that person's home tap their phones use other methods which I will not discuss they need warrants so that's at that point that they decide they need to come to the court to get the, to get a warrant or warrants,
2: and the, the court can move fast if it wants to yeah,
0: absolutely and we're always available I'm uh, when i'm on what we call special duty i know i can get a call in the middle of the night so what does a day in a life look like for a federal court judge yes most of us uh, of the 15 judges i am probably the only one who's more or less full-time doing this work now in my role as coordinator so we've always uh, believe that uh, the uh, the designated judges, this is only part of their general responsibilities as a federal court judge. So they may be uh, sitting in uh, another city doing uh, immigration uh, matters one week and then they return to Ottawa and they've got a week of special duty relating to warrants. Mm-hmm. The most demanding files are those which are document intense. I've spoken of uh, the thousands of documents that uh, can be uh, collected for review by the court in um, cases uh, the al-Malki, al Madi, and Nureddin uh, uh, matter for example I think began with some 23,000 documents. It was winnowed down over the course of many years to roughly 2,000 that I had to adjudicate. That was a Canada Evidence Act disclosure application in the context of a civil action before the Ontario Superior, Superior Court. We've had similar uh, document rich files in actions before the federal court and uh, they are the minutiae of those. You are, we are reading page after page after page of service reports where there are portions that are color highlighted with claims to, p- to protect them uh, for different reasons. Methods, techniques, uh, third-party information which is a very big one, information received from one of Canada's uh, uh, foreign partners, and uh, we have to uh, decide each and every one of those claims.
1: And decide whether in fact that information can be disclosed to the party for the purpose of some other lawsuit,
0: in this case a civil case. Usually it, in a civil case it arises in the context of discovery and production of documents which a party is otherwise entitled to for the purposes of the civil action. In a criminal matter there is the Stinchcombe standard of disclosure. The Crown must disclose all relevant information in its possession. and. On occasion, that can be a great deal of information collected by the service.
2: Cinchcomb is like an old friend of the podcast.
0: It, it is. Maybe f-
1: one final question, if, if you will. Uh, and, and this goes to uh, my interest as a law professor, and I see uh, your clerk, uh, Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Uh, wave at the podcast uh, recorder. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's a former student of mine, of course, and, and now your law clerk. Uh, so for students out there, uh, whether... Uh, law students or prospective law students or prospective law students doing an MA as well at Norman Patterson. Uh, JDMA. JDMA. Uh,
2: Accepting applications <laughs> in September.
1: <laughs> Given your uh, career trajectory, which includes working in justice and now a judge, what, what, uh, what advice might you have for those who want to develop this interest?
0: Well, I think they sh- should certainly take courses at the law school uh, level in public law more generally, constitutional law, But specifically, national security law, and I know they they are few and far between. I find I actually I I found it uh, quite disappointing this last year in reviewing candidates for uh, clerkships with the court. How few have actually taken such such courses. I would strongly urge those who might have an interest in this area to uh, learn the basics. And. and they uh, they could do worse than starting with you. <laughs> well, and also Michael
1: Nesbitt. Hi, Michael, at the University of Calgary, okay. who's now teaching in this area, and Kent Roach, uh, obviously at the University of
2: Toronto. Hey, well, Chris Penny. I should probably give my Chris Penny Nip- as well. Nipsey, shout Nipsia. out. Yeah. Right,
0: that's great.
1: And then if the if for the clerkship program, of course, you have clerks uh, every year, and uh, they're security cleared now, and so they have an opportunity to work in some of these areas.
0: The clerks who work for the designated judges are security cleared. Yes, that generally doesn't present a problem. On occasion, there may be some issues uh, with uh, dual citizenship, for example. But uh, normally, that uh, uh, all of our uh, all of our clerks must be Canadian citizens, and uh, with that as the basis, uh, it's not difficult to achieve the necessary clearance.
1: Is there anything else that we haven't covered this uh, this afternoon that? Uh might be useful for our listeners about uh, your role as a designated judge? Uh,
0: no, but uh, just uh, I'd like to say how much uh, I've appreciated the work that uh, you have done in this area. I find it, I follow it, uh, I listen to your podcasts, I read your uh, blog posting, and uh, it's very, often very informative about uh, developments in the law that we may actually have to rule on. Well, well, thank
1: you very much. and. Thanks very much for taking the time today to join us on this podcast. You're very welcome.
2: Cheers.